To save babies from abortion, we need to change public behavior. To change public behavior, we need to change public opinion and public policy. Let's get to work. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to our defense. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. My name is Peter. I'm the host of the show. And on the Zoom call, uh, we're not in the same studio, but virtually we are, is my my friend, my colleague, and the co-host of the show, Cameron Cote. Hello, sir. Peter, it's good to be back. Thank you for having me yet again. Um, it is a joy, as always, um, to be back. Sharing with people about how to have good, compelling, compassionate, mind-changing, baby-saving, all those incredible things, kind of conversations about abortion and topics that touch on to abortion. Good to be back. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it is. It's always good to be in studio. Uh, and to, and to, to dovetail off what you said, we are two guys who are passionate about ending the killing of preborn children in Canada. And this podcast, this episode, and the ones we have done before and the ones we will do in the future, uh, the good Lord willing, uh, we can continue doing episodes. Uh, this podcast is dedicated to giving you the tools that you need to change minds and save lives from abortion. And that's one thing I want to highlight. We, you know, we want you to, to, to have the, the information. We want you to, to meet some of the people that we get to have conversations with. Uh, we have a conversation with Seth Dreyer from uh, Created Equal today. But even more than that, we want you to be equipped to have great conversations with your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, uh, people you meet at school or at church or wherever it might be. We want you to have compelling and winsome and effective conversations uh, that highlight the humanity of preborn children and really shows the inhumanity of abortion. And, uh, and so we hope that uh, we are succeeding in that. Let us know what you think. Uh, and let us know if you've been able to get into a conversation on abortion from some of the things that you've learned uh, or brought up some of the things that you've learned here on the podcast. Let us know how that went. Um, you know, if you have any questions about that, we are here for you on uh, various social media platforms or website, prolifeguys.com. But we will get into that uh, at the end. I'll, I'll mention that again. Cam, a, uh, we, we opened up with uh, this quote to save babies from abortion. We need to change public behavior. Um, and to do that, we need to change public opinion and public policy. Yeah, we we often talk about these three different areas because I feel like at times pro-lifers um, kind of 
fall into the temptation of only thinking about public policy. And I think this is in the, the forefront of our minds, obviously, especially with the news that, that's happening down our, our neighbors to the south in America um, and all the incredible stuff and all the crazy stuff that's happening there with regards to Supreme Court appointments and elections and all that kind of thing. That ultimately, what is the goal of the pro-life movement? It is not simply to make abortion illegal. Um, Peter, you and I both absolutely want abortion to be illegal, but the law is a means to an end. We want a change in public behavior. We want people to stop having abortions, and there's two tools that are going to feed into that. Yes, public policy is going to be one of them. There are a lot of people in our society that, that look at public policy as their moral compass, and there's some people who say, oh, abortion is illegal, therefore I won't have one, regardless of what I think about it morally. On the flip side, though, public opinion is absolutely vital in building that change in public behavior. We need to change people's minds on the issue of abortion so that we stop abortions from happening. We, we hear all the time, what about when abortion becomes illegal and people flood to the, the back alleys and have these dangerous abortions? That's why, Peter, you and I are, are doing this so that people don't want abortions in the first place, regardless of whether it's legal or not, regardless of whether that tool has been put in place in Canada or other countries around the world. Um, public opinion is vital in changing not only public behavior, but also public policy. And so we need to have these conversations with people to change abortion. We need to have these conversations to stop people from thinking abortion is an appropriate solution to whatever um, crazy or difficult challenges they may be facing. And that's something that you can do through the conversations that you're having. And I know that at, at times, some of you are probably like nodding along of like, oh yeah, sure, Cam. Um, I'm sure that we could have conversations. You and Peter have, have had thousands of conversations. That's why you guys have confidence and, and that kind of thing. I want to give a quick shout out to a guy. I don't actually know if he listens to the podcast. If he does, um, that's cool. If not, his name's Samuel. He's one of our newest volunteers in Calgary. Um, he got trained over the summer. Life got busy. And so he's only come out twice to activism, twice that he's had um, proactive conversations with members of the general public about abortion. The first time he was paired up with me and we tag teamed a conversation where a guy was was kind of vaguely pro-choice, didn't really think about it a whole lot. And within five minutes, we, we trotted out the toddler a bunch of times. We talked about the human rights argument. That guy walked away completely pro-life. Last week at Chinook Mall, he was paired up with Kwayana, who's um, an incredible leader here in Calgary. And he had a, a conversation almost completely independently and saw a guy become considerably more pro-life than he was walking into the conversation. Walking in, he was completely supportive of abortion. Walking out, he said, you know what, this is, I absolutely have to think more about this because abortion isn't as clear-cut as I thought it was. Abortion can and often is be a human rights violation. So I say that because Samuel's awesome and I want to affirm him in that, but I also want to encourage you that this is something that you can get involved with. Samuel went out and had a conversation with his family over dinner, like siblings got together, they were out at the restaurant, I think, and applied some of the training that he had gotten to have a conversation with his family members. That's a long-winded intro story, but be like Samuel, apply these tools, change minds, and who knows, Lord willing, those minds might change um, and yeah, result in babies who are saved because of a conversation that you had with somebody two years or two days before they found out they were pregnant. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. Let's get into the conversation that we are going to be having today. We're chatting with uh, Seth Dreyer from Created Equal. We'll introduce him shortly. Talking about Amy Coney Barrett, talking about the work Created Equal does, 
talking about the Louisiana constitutional amendment that just happened regarding abortion uh, in Louisiana and talking about the ongoing election. Uh, So we hope you enjoy. This is the conversation we had with Seth. Today, we are joined by Seth Dreyer of Created Equal. He's the vice president. He's the director of training for Created Equal. I follow uh, Created Equal and Seth on social media, and they are out regularly uh, talking to people about abortion, not just in Ohio, where Created Equal is, uh, but around the country. So thank you so much for taking the time and joining us, Seth. Hey, Peter and Cam. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's our pleasure. To start us off, could you share with our listeners a little bit about who you are, how you got involved in the pro-life movement? And not only that, but also like, why did you stay in the pro-life movement? Why is this your full-time gig? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, like a lot of kids, I grew up, you know, I grew up in a home that was pro-life. I had I had some vague understanding of what abortion was, but I had this really clear memory of being with my grandmother at the mall one day, and she was talking about a book she was reading and about how we are we were pro-life people, she said. And I was like, oh, that, that makes sense. I mean, I wouldn't want to be anti-life. But it was not until I was in high school and I started researching, doing a presentation about abortion. And this will be familiar to a lot of your listeners. I ran across a video by Greg Cunningham, Hard Truth or Harder Truth, maybe at that time. And I watched it and I just thought, this is utterly astounding. I I knew what abortion was. I knew it was wrong. But seeing the victim of it just really rocked my world and changed me. And I thought, I've got to do something about this. A, A speech in high school is good. But talking to 30 kids in one class is only the first step. I wanted to go do something more. And so um, I started going to the local abortion facility, which is now gone. There's no longer one in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I was growing up. But I went there and I would pray with people there. I saw sidewalk counseling happen. And I thought, this is cool. This is a great thing to do. But I still didn't know what my role could be. And um, I, another person I'm sure is familiar to a lot of your listeners is a man named Scott Klusendorf, the president of Life Training Institute. And someone saw that I was out there um, doing a lot of praying and helping people on that street and said, well, come join our, join the local Right to Life organization. We have a training program with this guy named Scott Klusendorf. And um, I met Scott, drove him around in my car, a really crazy story where it was breaking down. He helped me try to fix on the side of the road on the way to a speaking engagement I was driving him to. Um, Thankfully, he has not, um, he didn't. excommunicate me from the movement back then. But so I talked to him a lot. I got to know him and I saw that there was a way that we can not only be pro-life, but if we know how to engage people with good ideas and with good, not only good information, but with good strategies and tactics that can move their heart, move their minds, we can actually shift people's thinking. So the pieces started kind of coming together for me, Um, being against abortion, learning those good apologetics, and then Still, for years, I did that. I helped Scott um, with a local um, local, uh, local apologetics training in Indiana for several years. And then my father-in-law said, you've got to meet this guy, Mark Harrington, who's running this program called the Genocide Awareness Project on college campuses in, uh, in the States. I thought, well, that sounds cool. Um, so I went to Ohio State University's Genocide Awareness Project. I met Stephanie Gray there, and I was just overwhelmed immediately because even though I had seen, I had seen the victims... I knew the arguments. I still had never seen a time when you have pro-life, pro-choice people talking and actual change happening. And you guys, I'm sure it's the same with you, but I was hooked because I thought not only is this meaningful, but I can actually make real change happen. And so that was in 2009. We're now um, over a decade later. I am still hooked because right now, 
things are crazy with the election. We don't know what's going to happen necessarily. But I know that no matter what, and what doing what we are doing, we can save lives every single day and move that cultural needle. So I'm still here because nothing else I think is um, as critical for rescuing lives and um, bringing the change we need. That's awesome. That is so, so cool. And and I'm glad that you mentioned that Florida trip. Um, I remember that's the first time I met you, Seth. Uh, we were talking before the show started. Um, 2011 was the first time I went down to Florida. And, and I had a similar experience. I remember meeting you as one of the trainers. And that's kind of crazy that your your first kind of experience um, doing the Genocide Awareness Project 2009, two years later, you're running the training with Mark Harrington and Stephanie Gray. Um, I remember being blown away by the presentation that you had given. And through the rest of the week, having a very, very similar experience of we can actually make a difference. Mm-hmm. We can actually change minds. This isn't something that, you know, it is an exercise in futility, but we just have to be faithful and not successful kind of thing. Certainly we have to be faithful, but it's amazing to actually see some kinds of success coming from the conversations you're having. And and that kind of leads me to uh, Created Equal, the, the um, organization that you're working for right now. Um, as Peter mentioned, the vice president and director of training. Um, our, our listeners are, are very familiar with CCBR. I think Peter and I have probably mentioned Life Training Institute and a few others in passing. Um, in in Canada, at least, we often characterize the pro-life movement as being broken into three distinct but collaborative wings, the, the political, pastoral, and prophetic or educational wing. And, and CCBR fill, falls into, first and foremost, the educational. I'm, I'm sure that at times we've dabbled in other areas. Um, can you share a little bit about Created Equal, the work that you guys are doing in the States? Um, and I don't know if you guys kind of fit into one of those categories or if you guys um, branch into a couple of them, but tell us a little bit about Created Equal and the role that you're doing there. Yeah, so you're exactly right, Cam. With I mean, same here in the states with the three arms, really, and we fall pretty solidly into the educational arm, even though kind of like you, sometimes we dabble, um, right? So um, we will go lobby for a bill if it's a bill that is against abortion and makes sense for us to go be part of. But even in doing that. We are still a bit, our mind is still kind of on what is the educational impact of this bill, even if the bill fails. So we fall into that camp clearly. Create Equal, our mission is pretty simple and would resonate with a lot of your listeners because we, you know, going way back, Jojo Ruba, Stephanie Gray, founders of CCBR, were close to Mark Harrington and good friends of ours as we were kind of laying the groundwork for Created Equal. Our mission is simple. We think anyone, anywhere can change hearts and minds on abortion if they know how to and have the tools. It's not just knowing the arguments, but having someone lead you out to the public square to mentor you and show you how to start the conversation. I'm sure that you guys know with interns you have and other people you train, so many people know the arguments but are terrified to begin a conversation. You take them to a college campus, you stand with them and ask people, what do you think about abortion? And they suddenly, they learn by your example and being thrown into it kind of, if you will, they start being willing to do that themselves. So our mission is simple. Um, abortion victim photos are, are critical because we have to have objective evidence of what we're talking about. We have to know the arguments and we have to know how to contextualize our arguments because we're talking to people today. We can't speak to them the same way we would 1980s. We have to be speaking to real people today. So in a nutshell, that's what we're trying to do. Cool. Yeah. I, I think each and every one of us can relate to those moments when we when we know the content, but are just kind of scared. Uh, to get out there and get into that first conversation. I remember uh, we talked about Gap. I'm going to bring it up, the Genocide Awareness Project. Um, I think it was 2016. I was in Texas with a, a number of the CBR folk. 
uh, at the Texas State University, and there were there there were tons of protests and, and all of that, more than I had seen uh, prior and and a long time afterwards. And I was so, super nervous to go out and have conversations. I knew how to, didn't dare to. But what I ended up doing was I put my pamphlets away, and I I just you know took my you know my uh, just I, I didn't let anyone know that I was from this group, and I just went into the crowds and I had conversations with people, and I was like, hey man, like can you believe they're on campus here? Like what do you think about these images? And uh, just acted like a student, but had good, meaningful conversations where I was trying to ask these probing questions and ended up uh, seeing a number of people change their minds uh, through that as well. So that was pretty sweet. Um, so there's always a way, I guess, when you're nervous to, to get into a conversation. But one of the questions, uh, uh, Seth, I have. So this is the, the work you do. You use abortion victim photography. Could you share a little bit about some of the projects that you do? Um, yeah, I've heard I've heard the term justice ride. Not really sure what that is. Um, so what is the justice ride and what are some of the other projects that you do to get, uh, the truth about abortion to the people of the United States? Yeah. So I, our justice rides are, um, you know, going way back. We took the inspiration from the freedom riders, the 1960s era. Um, so a lot of states had already federal law, um, was already trying to end segregation on transport systems. And yet a lot of states were still segregating their transport systems and so there were um, black and white activists coming together, called them, calling themselves freedom riders, trying to focus America's attention on this persisting injustice, even if it was not legal to segregate anymore in these systems. And so they would sit in the front of the bus, white people by black people. They were attacked. A lot of violence happened. What they did is smoked out the racism. And by smoking it out, it gave a visual to the racism in America. And so the freedom riders did that and it was enormously impactful in that period of time. So with Create Equal, our mission, our thought is, well, there's no doubt that there is persistent injustice. It is elective abortion. We're killing innocent humans. We have to somehow focus America's attention on it again. And so we were inspired by the Freedom Riders to launch the Justice Rides. Now, as you know, though, with getting on a bus with a bunch of pro-lifers is not necessarily going to focus attention on the injustice. That's why the abortion victim photography is crucial to what we do. So we go to college campuses with these signs, similar to what you may have, showing babies living in the womb, also those killed by abortion. But we also realize that just, you know, our, our staff going out to hold these signs has limited impact. So while justice rides could be just create equals team on the road all the time, that's not good enough. We need to be having new people coming in to continue this on. So the big buzzword when Create Equal was, was formed was transferability. We want people to come, learn our tactics, take them and go do them wherever they are. The justice rights make that possible. When people come, get on a bus here in Columbus, Ohio, we have usually 50 or so students on a bus. We go to Florida, similar to probably your Florida tour. We go campus to campus. We train them. In our classroom training, we always tell them this is the first part. The real training is standing next to me, shoulder by shoulder to shoulder on campus all week long. We'll talk to people about abortion. We'll get on the bus and debrief afterward. What did you hear today? What happened? What mind changes did you see? Who did you meet who had an abortion in the past? How did sharing the gospel influence them? And as a team for one week, they get holistic training and they go home to be true ambassadors in their hometowns. They become a justice writer. We have a pretty vibrant community of justice writers who stay in touch and um, build this enduring community to go home as pro-life leaders. That's really our starting project. Those students come back as interns in the summer, get more training. Um, that's kind of the key one that Create Equal is known by, the Justice Rides. 
Um, we could go into others if you'd like to, um, how other ways like Project Week Link, which target people who work with abortion facilities, um, many other projects if you'd like, but I don't know where you'd like to go in the conversation. I, I, I love that focus on the mentorship. That's something that we're really trying to grow in at CCPR. And I think especially um, for all those community group leaders and, and volunteer leaders, that's something that, that I really want to encourage people to, to really tune into and, and check out this idea of mentoring new volunteers through um, their first couple episodes of, of activism. Because like Peter said, it, it can be overwhelming, right? And to be able to partner with somebody and listen to some of their conversations and get help in your first couple of conversations is incredibly valuable. I, I think of uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, in Winnipeg helping our, our colleagues, Kyle and Maddie, um, put together a crash course out there. And the overwhelming majority of participants had said, you know, I, I don't really think that we can have conversations. Like, I, I'm just not ready for it yet. I, I have no confidence, that kind of thing. We went out for maybe an hour of door knocking people getting paired up with somebody who had a little bit of experience. And by the end of that one hour, they're saying, you know what? I, I feel way more confident now. I listened to you twice. I had a couple mm. of conversations with you as a, as a kind of safety net and going from there. And I think that's really neat how you've built that into the project that you're doing down there to really help people build that confidence. It's not just, okay, you got your, your two hour training workshop. Here's a stack of pamphlets with, well, <laughs> change the world. Let us know how it goes kind of thing. But, but that mentorship is, is so, so valuable. Well, I think we all probably had that, right? Like I remember Stephanie Gray Connors, um, a lot of my early gap tours, I would just plant myself by her and listen to everything she said, right? And we know how that impacted us and they're the same way. I mean, why would they, they deserve the same thing. And now the, the weird thing is that now we're the leaders, right? That are mentoring people. But <laughs> even like our summer interns, I send them home and say, you've had two months of this enduring practice and now being mentored by us. It's your turn. You need to go do this too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, there's certainly a lot more we could talk about about this, but there are a few other things we want to 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 have a conversation about. As you uh, mentioned earlier, there is a lot happening around the United States right now, and uh, not just in the last week, but it seems like this whole year has been crazy. Um, I don't know what what the what Americans know about Canadian politics, but by and large, we're pretty <laughs> aware of what's happening uh, south of the border. Good for you. We're not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's okay. It's pretty boring here, so I can see why. I mean, this. I know about Prime Minister Trudeau, so I can talk about. I mean, I know of him, but. Gotcha. You mean you weren't tuning into the the live stream of the the committee in London who was discussing whether or not they were going to ban um, images in mailboxes? That that was riveting. Several hours <laughs> um, earlier this week. <laughs> um, shout out to the people in London who are um, changing minds out there and had to sit through that. Um, borderline mind-numbing experience but <laughs> <laughs> i digress yeah all right so let's start off um or continue on rather seth by talking about amy coney barrett uh in conservative circles she's not a, a, a controversial figure at all however um just looking at the mainstream media how they're portraying not only her and her family perhaps uh, but also the process that's happened over the last couple of weeks and, and perhaps months um, to get her nominated and then sworn in as the new justice of the Supreme Court um, was a big thing. So could you just give us a context uh, a little bit? Um, I know we've heard a lot. We've, we've heard ad nauseum, perhaps, that uh, this nomination should have waited until after the election. Is that is that a precedent in the United States? Was it OK for Donald Trump to make a nomination and for Mitch McConnell to, to push this through the Senate as he did? You're right. This has been contentious. And um there's no question, you know, if, if you, I don't know if any of your listeners do you talk about maybe boring tuning in, a lot of people probably would be bored silly if they tune into the hearings. Um, I, I watched a lot of the hearings with Amy Coney Barrett because 
I would I think it's fascinating what's been happening. Um, I think that one thing that cannot be forgotten is we just see this this frenzy from the progressivists in America right now. Because in the 20th century, they had a social agenda. They wanted to enforce and advance. Um, I know a lot of the um, documentation of this has been done by, by Jonathan Maron on your staff. And uh, he has done a good job of this, tracking the sexual revolution and other things that happened. But a large project of the left in America in the 20th century was we cannot get abortion in the, in the legislative, uh, legislature. We don't have enough votes to move our agenda. So we have to use the courts. They turned to the courts to get their agenda passed. And they were successful 1973, Roe v. Wade, nine men in black robes foisted abortion on all of America because most states still had anti-abortion laws at the time. They overturned those. This continued into the 21st century um, with same-sex marriage and other things. They've used the courts to advance their agenda. But there's a danger for them on that horizon. They see Amy Coney Barrett as the possible major downturn of their system, their project, because they see the court as hugely conservative. I'm not as persuaded as they are because Chief Justice Roberts has not always gone that way, but they know that they no longer have what they, it's really funny. Okay, sorry to pause my own sentence, but what's really been super interesting is that lately I've seen a lot of progressivists complaining that that conservatives now are trying to use the court to advance the agenda they can't pass in the legislature. They're just, they're confused. They're the ones who started that game we're merely trying to stop them at that game now. Now, Amy Coney Barrett, the thing is, she's an originalist. She's not going in as a judicial activist who's going to try to foist conservative agendas on America. So in some ways, their fears are, I think, overplayed. But you see that they have lost power, and that terrifies them. So that's not only really answering your question, but I think that's kind of the cultural background, why they're so frenzied. I think they absolutely the, the Senate had the precedent to move on. The, the precedent has certainly been that when a president nominates someone in election year and the Senate is not on his side, the Senate has not always moved forward with his um, appointee. And that's, that's true. That's been the case for American history. There is no precedent that you always go proceed or don't proceed with the appointee because as people on the streets don't like this, I just a couple weeks ago told someone this. And they said, oh, you're just a Trumpite. And that's not true. I, I, I am not a show for Trump. Um, Donald Trump has done a lot of things I find troubling. But it is true that elections have consequences. You don't like the Senate moving forward or not with the appointees? Put in another Senate. That is your right as a, as a voter. But the Senate has a job to do. It's not just to flip a switch yes or no, but to do what, they're, to do what they believe is best as they lead our republic, those who voted them in. And they had the right to do that. But it's been shocking. I mean, if you've been watching, sorry, there's so much to say about this. Like, I mean, it is, they have, what Amy Coney Barrett did is smoke out the, not only the frenzy from the left, but also the prejudice. I mean, you see people who are, professor, author, Ibram Kendi, attacking her as a colonialist for adopting children who have black skin. We've been told for years in our conversations, you and us about abortion, how many black babies have you adopted? We have a woman who did that now, and that, well, but she's a colonialist. Like, this is just shocking. So we <laughs> see that, a lot of what is happening is it's smoking out that there is a grab for power right now. They're losing and they're terrified. And so they're just throwing anything they can at her. And it didn't stick. She is unflappable. Yeah, she is. I, I watched some of the uh, the Senate hearings. I also find them interesting. I probably didn't watch as much as you, but um, she she most certainly impressed me as she, uh, as she faced some very ridiculous uh, questions throughout those several days. And held up her pad. Or blank pad. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. What's, what sort of notes do you have? Nothing. Everything's everything's from her mind. 
So one of the big conversations that happens uh, in the pro-life movement in the United States from our vantage point is a conversation around Roe versus Wade. And the the left, as you mentioned, um, they've been using the courts to push through uh, a number of points in their agenda, but they are extremely frightened right now uh, from what I've been reading and seeing about uh, the possibility of Roe versus Wade being overturned. Now, from your end, uh, you said uh, just just a, just briefly a moment ago that you don't think the court is as conservative as some people make it out to be. But can we expect discussion on Roe versus Wade? Can we expect any sort of decision? Um, you know, as as Amy joins the court, like where what what can we expect in the in the next year or two? Yeah, that's fascinating. So the one thing that's super interesting is that there have been a lot of bills in a lot of states over the past few years. This is tracked by a lot of pro-abortion groups who are very frustrated by this. A lot of um, bills to ban abortion at 20 weeks when, by all accounts, baby can feel pain, even though new science shows baby feels pain a lot earlier than 20 weeks. But a lot of states have passed um, bills based on that kind of outdated science because now we know it's earlier. Other states like Ohio passed heartbeat bills that would ban abortion when there is a detectable heartbeat, not when the heart starts beating, but when it's detectable, so that's five, six weeks. And a lot of these um, states that pass these bills have been discouraged by the Supreme Court in the past not taking up their case when it's it's over. It's um, stopped by a lower court. They appeal to the Supreme Court, who's higher. The Supreme Court has often said, "No, we're not going to take up that case." And a lot of the pro-life movement's intuition, what we've what we've been, or not just intuition, we've seen some evidence that the court has been waiting for a stronger majority before taking up one of these cases. And so, Amy Coney Barrett jumping on, it gives us great hope that maybe now they will take up one of these cases, and that certainly could be an opportunity to overturn Roe v. Wade. It's all the big question is always. When a decision is reached, though, how is the how is the decision written? Is it going to have wide ramifications for the whole country? Is it going to overturn a precedent? I think what's most important with Amy Coney Barrett, for, for those who did not watch the hearings, because there is all this hub, this big discussion right now, will they take up the case? Will they consider Roe v. Wade again? Is it going to be super precedent that can't be reached? And this is a big discussion we're all following right now. Amy Coney Barrett revealed exposed something very important, I think, in her hearings. And that was, she was being grilled by one of the um, the progressive pro-abortion senators. I can't remember who it was. Um, maybe, um, yeah, I'm not sure it was. But anyhow, she was being drilled on, is Roe v. Wade, which made abortion legal throughout America, is it super precedent? And super precedent is not merely precedent, which should generally be held up. It's so ingrained that it should never even be considered again. They shouldn't even touch it. These would be things like Brown v. Board of Education, which ended segregation in our schools in America. They're trying to equate Roe v. Wade with that. And Amy Coney Barrett said, well, it's Roe v. Wade is not super precedent because the very fact you're asking me about this shows there's still such wide contentious debate in America. It is not untouchable precedent. So I'm super encouraged by this because she's not merely an originalist who believes the Constitution's words were as the authors intended them. That's what matters, not how you want to rewrite them. She is also not going to just blindly follow every single precedent. She's willing to to consider what is truly super precedent and what is not. So I'm encouraged. I don't. I'm not saying that tomorrow we should expect Roe to be overturned, but we are in a better place than we have been in decades. I I know that we got a, a couple more topics that we want to touch on, but but two questions that I think are kind of linked on this. I I don't know what your experience has been in America. I know that in Canada sometimes people in the pro-life community fall victim to this idea of we get a, a political leader or, or a, a legal um, expert or, or justice nominated and we say, you know what, 
it's all going to get fixed. This person is going to solve all of our problems. It happened in Alberta here with Jason Kenney. Um, I'm sure that it's happened for various Conservative Party Canada candidates. This, this idea of this pro-life person, we know that they're pro-life. They go in there and we can stop working. And this person is going to like solve all of our problems. They're going to end abortion kind of on their own almost. And so connecting that with the idea of the conversations that you guys are still having on street corners and on campuses and whatnot, what kind of wisdom or, or thoughts would you have for people who might either be falling into that trap of Amy, uh, Amy Conan Barrett is going to solve all of the problems. Pro-life movement has already won. We can, we can start the celebration parties now and how you continue to engage conversations on campuses about pro-life education, I guess. Well, I think there's an important point there. Um, this is a reality check for sure. Um, the couple days after the, the vote that, that appointed her officially as a justice, we were at um, uh, University of, uh, where were we? University, um, somewhere near Cincinnati, I can't remember the campus, but I was on this campus and talking to students. They, they were like, why are you even here? You got your justice already. Aren't you done? I'm like, we have a long ways to go. And so I think there's proof of that with the election right now in America. And this is another topic we're going to get to, I know, but there's this great amendment that passed in Louisiana, which is to try, which already setting up the game. So if Roe v. Wade is overturned, they can't say, oh, well, our constitution has a penumbra, as they did with the, the American uh, federal constitution. They can't say our constitution has hidden in it some protection, some right to privacy that guarantees women in Louisiana the right to an abortion. They're preparing the way for that, but and we'll talk about that more in a moment. But at the same time, we were they were trying to pass a 22-week abortion ban in Colorado, a very very liberal state, but that failed overwhelmingly. So clearly, the cultural battle is far from won. If we can't pass a bill to stop the killing of a 22-week baby, there's clearly work to be done in America. And so yes, she has been appointed, and it'd be great if they overturn Roe v. Wade, but. We, we know, I think it was Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the late senator, who said that um, politics are downstream of culture. We know that you overturn Roe v. Wade tomorrow. That's great. But if the culture is moving left at a far, fast rate, Biden, if he's, if he's elected the president, he may pack the court with new justices. They may vote in a more liberal regime in the future. So if we, if we put our faith in politics only, we're going to lose. You, that's why you mentioned the three arms earlier. We all three work in tandem in work together in concert to get this project done. Yeah, that's right. And that's that's one of the reasons that we often say uh, the educational arm is is an extremely important arm. Yes, the politics are important. Uh, yes, the the uh, the pastoral arm is important, the, the crisis pregnancy counseling and so on. But the educational arm that we're the ones the people who are on the streets are the ones who are changing the culture and and shifting the culture, showing the people of the culture what abortion really is. So you yeah. mentioned the constitutional uh, amendment in Louisiana. You mentioned uh, the the vote in Colorado. Could you share a little bit more about that? So what what is this Louisiana constitutional amendment regarding abortion? And I know we have a very different process uh, in Canada than you guys have in the United States. So so how did that get passed? Like, is that something that's voted in your Senate or your House, or is that a a, a vote statewide? So could you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, I think it's important again. I, I, as you said, people are more familiar with American politics than, than um, we are with other countries. I know that's the case. I remember being a, a kid um, traveling in Europe when I was younger, learning French. Um, and there were all these people who knew all the pop cultural things about America I didn't even know about. So I know that we have an outsized influence, which is uh, interesting. But uh, people, but I, so I don't want to at all um, uh, offend your, view, your listeners who are already familiar with this. But it is important to understand that 
Roe v. Wade made abortion legal throughout the country, but overturning Roe v. Wade would not make abortion illegal throughout the country. So what would happen if we overturned Roe v. Wade is the abortion debate goes back to the states, back to every state legislature. Prior Roe v. Wade, there were states like uh, California, maybe Colorado, I think, who had liberalized their abortion laws prior to Roe v. Wade. And so there are some states that if you go back to their original laws, they would already have some, some laws in the book saying abortion is legal in certain instances, at least. But it would go state by state. So Louisiana, though, is pretty smart. There, a lot of states, Ohio's already looking this way, too. They're looking at trigger um, bills. You could bills that go on the books that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, they immediately go into effect. So um, some states may pass a bill that says if Roe v. Wade is overturned, we now abortion is criminalized in, I don't know, Kentucky or wherever you may choose. Louisiana, they decided to do an amendment um, that would say nothing in our state constitution if Roe v. Wade is overturned, nothing can be construed in our Constitution to protect abortion because they already know that people are scouring their Constitution looking for something like a vague right to privacy. They could say, look right here, we have a right to abortion because that's kind of what happened in Roe v. Wade. Black men said there's a penumbra, this, this shadow of the right to privacy that women need a right to, women have a right to abortion by that. Interestingly, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg she did not like Roe v. Wade because she thought it was not strong enough because it rooted abortion in that kind of right to privacy. She would have rather have abortion rooted in the right to um, equality, the Equal Protection Act. So anyhow, that's maybe more boring for your people. But I think it's important to know that there are states who are preparing for this. And Louisiana is one who they took it to a state vote by the people. And it's interesting that it passed overwhelmingly. You had like 62 percent of people voting for this constitutional amendment against abortion overall. Now, this was not a third trimester abortion ban. I think it's pretty shocking they got it done to an overwhelming majority. And I've seen a lot of, uh, there's a, 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 a pro-abortion freelance writer I know um, named Robin Marty, who's friendly, you could talk to her on Twitter, and she was upset about the fact that more people voted for this, um, this constitutional amendment in Louisiana than voted for Donald Trump. Now, that's encouraging. That shows that there are those who have not bowed to the, you know, there are people in the, like Bernie Sanders and others in the Democratic Party who say you don't belong here if you're not pro-abortion. But you had some who voted against, voted for this measure who were not voting for Trump. So it's encouraging. For sure. And and I mean, I, I don't know how many films, Disney films in Louisiana, I'm sure they're going to be exporting more of the filming from there into China and other... Um... Exactly, where they have concentration camps, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. In the background uh, of the film Mulan, you can see the concentration <laughs> Um, I, definitely exciting stuff. I, I hear it said all the time in Canada about, oh, well, how many lives are these bills actually saving? All that kind of thing. And I think that that, that is a very good clarification of how these bills really work. That sure, um, a heartbeat bill in Ohio, um, this this amendment in Louisiana may not save lives right now uh, when it goes um, after the vote. But it is kind of that that trigger situation that if and when Roe v. Wade is overturned, they, they do go into action. They absolutely start saving lives at that point. And so I, I think that's a really good clarification. And I think, that, like again, back to what we said earlier, too, the educational impact is huge. I mean, I remember in 2000, um, I think 10 it was, when the heartbeat bill in Ohio was first introduced, people on the streets, I saw this change. They stopped talking about the heartbeat as like three months in, which is bad science. They realized, oh, it's early on. They might not know exactly when it starts, but they realize it's much earlier than they had believed. So the educational impact is huge for these efforts. Yeah. All right. So let's dive into the election. 
which is ongoing at mm. the moment of recording. <laughs> we are recording on right Thursday. Now. Well, they probably pause counting right now. <laughs> so. yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, they're all taking a long rest. Resume next week sometime, perhaps. Um, yeah, so, uh, but but it's an ongoing election. We don't know the results uh, at the at the time of recording. This is this is likely not likely. This has been a wild ride for you guys, Seth. I'm sure you've been uh, checking elections maps uh, about every 15 minutes to see if there's any update, any more votes coming in. Um, you know who's who's winning, who's losing in particular states. Uh, I know I stayed up uh, till the wee hours of the morning uh, with some of my colleagues here and, and ended up going to bed when I figured out that uh, we're probably not going to know for a little while. Um, so, uh, I know from social media, uh, that you have been doing work around the election, uh, with created equal. Could you share a little bit about some of the anti-abortion work that you guys have been doing during this election season and specifically the, uh, working up to the final election and, and the voting day? Oh yeah, sure. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. We've had our vote anti-abortion project going on. We, we bring this out every election. We think it's super important that those who are voting know um, what abortion is and also where the people stand on it, because we need an informed electorate to make this work. And we also, we're, you guys know this, You've, you, you guys are, have been involved in the statistics um, research. You know that when people see the video, see the photos or videos on a jumbotron like we have or on signs like um, we have, their hearts are changed. And also they realize, oh, how I vote actually can impact this. I mean, we all care about We'll talk about the things that matter to us as voters, economy, COVID-19, on and on. Human rights rank pretty high, and they, at least they should rank pretty high. And if there were a party that were advancing the killing of 2,300 toddlers every day, like we have dying by abortion every day in America, I think that people would not want to vote for those people. So, I mean, we're pretty, we're not defeatist here. We believe if the electorate is informed, they can actually be moved to vote the right way. So our vote anti-abortion campaign involves... Um, we have a banner that flies um, behind an airplane in the sky that says vote anti-abortion. Um, we've lately, we've been, we're, again, we talked earlier about kind of contextualizing the argument. We've been contextualizing this as um, if you truly believe that we should save black lives, you must vote anti-abortion because in America, a black baby is 3.7 times more likely to be killed than a black, than a white baby. Um, you guys know the story of Margaret Sanger, her eugenicist efforts. She wanted to eradicate the human weeds, which were black people and other minorities. We also know that in America, according to Washington Post, last year, 14 unarmed black people were shot and killed by the police, that, which is 14 tragic deaths. But that same year, over 230,000 unarmed black people were killed by abortion. And so our anti-abortion effort this cycle has been focused on, we know that matters to people. Black Lives Matter, they know that. So that's not a cliche. It's a true statement we should all be making. Now, the organization Black Lives Matter is very troubling. But the truth is that those lives do matter. And because they matter, you should vote anti-abortion. So our anti-abortion campaign brings the cultural context to with the victim photos to voters. With the airplane tow banner, uh, with our team that's been on the road, we went to the presidential debates. We stood outside them with our signs talking to people. And boy, that was a wild ride because <laughs> there you don't have the, <laughs> the mid-range of middle-level America coming through. It's the hardcore pro-Trump people, hardcore pro-Biden people, and not a lot in between. And they're <laughs> not a big fan of us being there, shockingly, because you know this. People respond in ways that are interesting to the abortion photos when they're hardcore supporters of it. Because you have your political views in your mind, but your heart is moved when you see the photos and suddenly there you have this 
weird, odd thing going on where you're, you feel grief at seeing the dead baby, but your mind says, no, that's a good thing politically, and it creates this kind of awkward moment for people. But so the last thing that we've been doing, the kind of our, I think in a way, maybe the most important effort with the anti-abortion campaign is responding to really using the opportunity of these early voting efforts. Because we've had early voting in America like never before, and that's a separate conversation. But we know that in Franklin County, Ohio, for example, for weeks we had people lined up around the building where it's going outside. And so we thought, hmm, captive audience, they can't move. They're going to stay in line. We'll go stand right next to them with our signs and talk to them. And this is great because we had a true, true cross-section of Ohio at this, out, out this um, building where we'd stand 10 feet from them, talk to them, and we could chat with them. And um, that has seen, I don't know how many voters we moved, but I know a lot of people saw the, vo- saw, the fi- saw the photos and heard the arguments and we talked to them and you know that has long-term effects. So that's kind of what we did with our anti-abortion effort this cycle. That's awesome. And and I, I think, again, obviously that speaks to the value of the abortion victim photography and how it, it simplifies the conversation, right? It, it simplifies it because abortion ends up protesting itself. As soon as as soon as soon it's on, on display, people have to wrap their heads around. I remember um, doing one of our choice gene displays at a, a senior high school in Calgary here, and one of the teachers came out and literally complained to me, how am I supposed to explain abortion as a, a woman's right when you're showing a picture like that? And I just looked at it with, with, with all due respect, I, I can't help you there. Um, <laughs> that that it is really difficult to convey this as a woman's right when you see the victim of that injustice. Another thing that, that springs to my mind, I love how you trotted out the toddler on that that election kind of question, right? I, I was speaking at a conference put on by Matt Fratt and a bunch of people were were joining from the States. And I'm sure some of our listeners are are from the States. And they were asking this, like, how am I supposed to make this decision? Why, why does abortion need to rank so high on my priorities when it comes to an election? And just trotting out the toddler, just like you did. Imagine one of the candidates was supporting 2,300 born children being killed legally every year, uh, not every year, every day in America. Could you support a candidate? Like, like how much good would they have to do before you started supporting them that this is really what we're dealing with when it comes to candidates, not how much we love them, how much we want them to babysit our children, um, there are other there are other policies. I, I wish that if abortion wasn't on the table, I, I'm sure that we could have a much more interesting political conversation mm-hmm. about different policies, like you said, the economy, COVID, all that kind of stuff. The reality is, is that we got a candidate who is actively trying to increase the number of children that are killed day after day, and one who has done a lot of work to, to decrease the number. And so all that to say, a, a question I, I'm curious about, because we get labeled with it even in Canada here of being avid Trump supporters. Oh, you guys are just the, the Trumpite um, that have crawled out of your caves and whatnot. <laughs> I'm, sure that, I'm sure that you guys have, have been labeled that way um, in the States as well through this campaign and in the, the whole time that he's been president. Um, how do you guys navigate conversations like that? Um, and, and what would you suggest to other people who, whether they do or don't necessarily align with all of his political statements and whatever, how do you guys navigate that kind of um, association that is sometimes pinned on your backs, I guess? Well, I think Cammy said it so well. I mean, I wish we had the luxury of having two candidates who held to a consistent view of human rights, and then we could have a great debate on those secondary issues. I think it's just... We, okay, here's the deal. I was telling people this last week at the early voting center. Vote. There's no virtue in voting just to vote. The virtue isn't being an informed voter, voting with good moral principles. And so it is, I think, childish to think that 
um, what that there are no that there all issues matter equally. That's a very simplistic view of voting. It is right to be able to, as an adult, to look at the various issues on the table and think what ranks, what is central, what's primary, what is secondary. So yeah, I, I do care about someone's economic policies. That matters to me. But if someone has great economic policies but says, you know what, I want to make it legal and safe for men to sexually assault women. I think, well, you've lost my vote there. I'm not going to stand with you. That's disgusting. And that's not the same thing because it's a different group of humans we are affecting, but it's the same idea that we have someone, we have a party overwhelmingly who is dehumanizing an entire swath of human beings. And that must rank because, you know, we talk about the right to life, liberty here in America. You can't have these other rights if you're not alive. So we think it's pretty clear that there is no greater human rights abuse than that which is the direct intentional killing of innocent human beings. Um, because we have, do we have different policies on welfare? Yeah, we do. Um, and it, does that matter? Yes, it does. But what if someone said, I think we should kill everyone in welfare? Well, that's a, clearly a worse view, right? So when it comes to intentionally killing humans, that's a big deal. So what I just try to do, Cam, if someone says you're just a Trumpite, is help me understand where you're coming from. What would you think about President fill in the blank if they held this view on killing, as you said, toddlers or someone else, would that make them a good or bad group? Or even like Planned Parenthood, we hear that faulty 3% thing passed around, which is bogus. Planned Parenthood does not only do 3% abortions. The bulk of their, their work is abortions. Um, but I say, even if you're right on the 3%, what if there were another organization that helped men with, you know, all kinds of health issues, but 3% of what they did was helping men to rape women? Would that be a good organization? No, clearly it wouldn't be. So um, I'm just trying to help them kind of, sorry. I'm just trying to help them to understand that and to, um, to try to think about this in a real way. Um, does it make me a Trump bite? If they want to lay with me with that, that's okay. I'm not a show for Trump. But what I care most about is not what do they think about me or Donald Trump, but what do they think about the babies? And so however I can get there, defending the Republican Party or any other group is not my goal, but getting them back to that central issue, that's my goal. Boom. And I think that's bang on it. And even some that I've said here time and again in, in Canada even is that, you know, we've been defending the rights of, of all humans long before Trump ever appeared on the political stage. And we are yeah. going to be doing it long after um, Donald Trump disappears from the political stage. This isn't about our love of a particular candidate. This is about wanting all humans to get human rights. And as you can see from this photo of, an, of abortion, there are some humans in our society that aren't getting human rights. Let's talk about mm -hmm. the issue. And then you can, um, once you realize just how heinous of an injustice this is, then we can talk about what you can do about it sort of thing. And, and that obviously does lead directly into um, the political conversation that we've been having. Mm. Well said. Uh, one of the questions I have, Seth, um, so like I mentioned, we don't know who's going to win right now. Um, you know, bo both options are still up in the air. But if we would get or if you would get a Biden presidency and uh, I don't know where your Senate is or where your House races are right now, uh, but what sort of policies um, or bills or, or yeah, what, what sort of policies would you see or expect to be passed uh, regarding abortion in the United States? Yeah, that's a, a scary question. Um, that's why I think the, the really good news is it looks pretty certain we're going to retain the Senate control, which is important because back to the Supreme Court with Amy Coney Barrett, Biden told everyone 
when he was asked, are you going to pack the court, which means add new seats on the Supreme Court to try to, to put in some more liberal justices? He wouldn't give an answer on that, said, ask me after the election. Um, if he does not get the Senate, he can't do that. And that's a good thing. And still <laughs> shocking that he wouldn't give an answer, but that's what he's doing. So anyhow, if we have the Senate, it's going to very limit, greatly limit his agenda. So now he can still do a lot with executive orders. Um, I expect the first thing he, he will do is to rescind the Mexico City policy. This is um, Trump put this back in. Obama struck it down. Bush put it in. Obama struck it down. Trump put it back in. This limits our funding for abortions overseas. It's an executive order, though. So with a pen, the new president, if it is Biden, can strike it down again and send a lot of money to overseas that sees abortions. So good news is, actually bad news, very sarcastic here is, we will be colonial in the sense that we're going to fund the killing of people overseas. That's true colonialism today, trying to force other countries to take on our abortion ideologies, and we'll be funding it. That's if Biden is put in. Other things he would do, he'll you know give a lot of funding to Planned Parenthood. Obama, um, I'm sure he'll continue Obama's efforts of um, ceasing a lot of adoption um, funding, and, and that would continue, I would expect. Um, there's a lot else he could do. I think one of the one of the most overlooked things is he will have appointees throughout the government in the Health and Human Services Department, other groups that who you have in those departments greatly impacts works that groups like ours can do. Um, Kamala Harris is running for vice president. She worked very hard in California to stop the work of David Delighton, who was exposing the harvesting and selling of baby body parts. Their appointees to the HHS and other departments could severely limit groups of groups doing some apolitical work, which is anti-abortion work, um, like what Delighton did. So there's a lot they could do. Now, again, the great news is if we keep the Senate, it will limit their legislation. So that is good, but there are still a lot of things they can do. They're not legislative, but they're still very dangerous. And so we have to be realistic about this. We have to recognize this is a major setback. It's not the end, but it would be a major setback. But thank God we have the Senate, looks like, and we thank God we have Amy Coney Barrett, so they cannot at least put one more liberal seat on. So it's a mixed bag. Yeah, that's great. That's that's good. As we as we slowly wrap this up, up Seth, uh, I would like to know what your call is for pro-lifers. Um, knowing what we know about their election results, knowing what we know about Amy Coney Barrett and, and all of the other things that are happening in the United States, if Trump wins the election, what's your call for pro-lifers? If Biden wins the election, uh, what are we as pro-lifers supposed to do? Um, do we do we keep defending if Biden wins and, and slow down if Trump wins? Where do we go from here, Seth? And and please don't say riding because I think there's already going to be enough people riding. That, that, <laughs> um, please, that, right? we're, we're just going to throw that out right off the bat that, that please don't ride or loot anybody's place. I, I saw an interesting meme of I, I wish that those riders would work from home and just destroy their own stuff. Um, <laughs> so just that caveat, obviously. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We already had a lot of cities boarding up windows downtown in fear of this. And this is still a major fear because when it is announced, if Trump wins, there will be I'm confident there will be rioting. And yes, the thing is, we don't have to tell pro-lifers don't do that because pro-lifers are peaceful, loving people, right? But it is important that we recognize that's that's not how we should respond. If you don't, if your winner doesn't, win, if you're a person that win, you grow up, put your big boy pants, and vote next time, and try to get him to win next time, right? But here's what pro-lifers have to recognize: if Trump wins, we have won another reprieve. We have stayed the hand of evil a little bit more, but that is far from an overall victory. And this, I think, um, you know, speaking back to one of my mentors, a friend of yours, I'm sure, too, Scott Klusendorf, when Trump won, he said, OK, are we going to just um, survive? 
or will we actually thrive over the next four years? Trump did a lot of good things for us, but here's the deal. George W. Bush, who was a pro-life president, maybe didn't do as many things for the movement um, as President Trump has, shockingly, but as he was doing good things, the culture moved far left underneath him. And so if Trump gets elected, we say, hey, great, we won for four more years. And we don't keep winning the hearts and minds of people. It's going to be a failure overall. And that's the great danger because, yeah, we have a lot of seniors right now who are voting pro-life, but a lot of the young people in America are not. A lot of the young people are voting for leaders who would take this this, uh, this false right to abort a child and, and enshrine it deeper into law. And so we must not, if Trump wins, sit back and rest on our laurels and think we are done. We must kick into high gear because the worldview, the Marxist worldview of a lot of the young people today voting is really troubling. We must directly um, confront that. And if Biden wins the presidency, we must do the same thing. So either way, it's really the same thing. We have to look at hearts and minds matter. We have to look at showing people abortion photos, getting into real conversations with them to change their hearts and minds and move their worldview to embrace human equality for all. That's what we must do. Our job does not change. Will it be easier if Trump wins? Yeah, it will. But either way, you and I, the work we do will not change. We must be on the streets shifting hearts and minds and um, mobilizing others to do the same. That's incredible. And and I'm so glad that's the way that you wrap that up, that, that yeah, ultimately, we, we got a, a long road ahead of us that, that we need to continue to change public opinion. Public opinion is going to fuel change public policies, as we've already seen. Change in public opinion also changes public behavior. That, that regardless of whether, just imagine if, if we could make that, what you had said about George W. Bush, the opposite effect of culture moving the opposite direction under a Democrat leader or a leader that supported abortion. And it was just moving in the opposite direction because people like those listening to this podcast and their friends and family members and members of their church were actively involved in changing hearts and minds on the abortion issue. That's where it starts. And that's where it ends, right? That and ultimately, we need to have those difficult at times, but absolutely vital conversations with your friends, family members, neighbors, uh, members of your community, and and using the tools that you have at your disposal, um, abortion victim photography, the apologetics tools that, that Peter and I try to touch on every week. Um, yeah, having those conversations. Um, with that with that said, um, so so you don't just come on podcasts like this. You run some sweet campaigns. You speak and you do debates. And for those of our listeners who are from America or those from internationally who would like to get involved in the different work that you're doing, the justice rights that we touched on earlier, how do they get a hold of you? Where do they find you? Um, and and what can people do if they're in your neck of the woods? Yeah, totally. So createdequal.org is our website. If you go to createdequal.org, you'll see all of our projects we're doing. You can see how to invite us, me. I'd love to come speak to your small group or church, help train you. Um, doing, again, similar work to CCBR because the hearts of our organizations are very closely knit together. Um, but wherever you are, please contact us, connect with us. We would love to help you. Our, our mission is pretty simple, again, to come help you do the culture work that needs to happen wherever you are with your small group, with your church, with your school. We want to help you do that to start changing hearts and minds. Come on the justice ride with us. And also, if you if you are open to it, I would love to come to your area and do a formal debate on abortion. 
again, this pe- group of people from your organization do this too. My debates have been fairly interesting lately, um, whether it be a professor walking around screaming at me or uh, someone, an anti-racist walking off the stage after seven minutes of her opening speech. They're, they're strange, but they, they're often entertaining. <laughs> and they're great opportunities to get people talking, which is what we have to do. Take this debate from just the stage and just the classroom out to the streets to everyday people. So createequal.org, find us on there. We'd love to connect. Join us on the Justice Rides as well. Sweet. You can find Seth at createdequal.org, createdequal.org. Seth, from, from Cam and I and from all of us here at CCBR, thank you so much for the work that you guys are doing south of the border. Thank you for your witness um, to, to defend and protect preborn children uh, from the slaughter that they are facing. So we really, really appreciate the work you guys are doing. And thank you so much for coming on today and having this conversation with us. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. Awesome. That is Seth Dreyer from Created Equal. If you are in the area of Created Equal's headquarters, which is Ohio or anywhere else in the States, do get in contact with Created Equal. Get involved in the projects they're doing, reaching out to people on university campuses and downtown street corners across the country and seeing minds changed and seeing lives saved. So do get in contact with them. That was a great conversation. We hope you enjoyed it. And thank you so much for tuning in once again to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. We are so humbled by your continued support. Uh, Do find us on Instagram. Do find us on Facebook. Let us know what you think of this podcast and uh, of the episodes that we're doing. uh, At Pro-Life Guys on Instagram, the Pro-Life Guys podcast on Facebook. Check us out on our website, www.prolifeguys.com. And if you're listening to this on the website, do check us out on your podcast catcher, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you name it. There's a whole bunch out there. Do find us on there. Cam, you have something to say about that. Yeah. Um, obviously, we want as many people to be um, checking out this content as possible because we need to, to raise up a, an entire generation of people who are having conversations with their friends, family members, and neighbors. And to help us do that, I would love to absolutely shamelessly invite you to give us a five-star rating. Um, Check it out. Share it with your friends. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a review on whatever catcher you're listening to us on. The reason for that is because every time somebody reviews us, particularly with a very positive review, like a five-star review, it boosts up the likelihood of us being found in different search engines. To put that into perspective, there's some people who simply look through um, the top podcasts out there within different categories. If you like and subscribe, and if you give us a rating and review, and if you check on our episodes, it boosts up the likelihood that somebody else is going to stumble across it. Maybe they're searching pregnancy, maybe they're searching politics or Canadian politics or something like that that relates to this podcast. If you can, Give us a five-star rating. If you can offer a review on there, it is going to boost the likelihood that other people like you come across this podcast to get more and more people um, equipped and capable and out there having conversations. So please, please do that. We certainly appreciate it. And yeah, do it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, do, do it right now. Uh, this episode's over. Go do it right now. That would help us out a lot and that would really get the message Um out to people who are looking for different podcasts to listen to. My name is Peter. That's Cam. Go find us uh, on your podcast catcher. Go find us everywhere else. Thank you all for tuning in once again. And we want to encourage you. We want to inspire you. Get out there. 
have conversations, change minds, and save lives.